The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Ah, a beautiful rainy Sonoma pour by Sam Katuri. Hey, everybody, I'm John Myers. Welcome to the winemakers. Sitting here with Bart Casey and... Bart Casey. How nice is Bart Casey and Brian Hansen? I mean, just interchangeable. And here we were just, you know, trying to stop everything so we didn't talk too much before we introduced our guests. Nice introduction. Why would we why would we do that and change up from the other 275 episodes? Welcome to the winemakers. Brian Casey, that's my buddy Bart Hansen and Kira Bellotta, winemaker and owner at Olivia Brion and Cantadora. Welcome to Sonoma. Thank you. On a rainy, rainy morning. Wow. I started in the cellar here, so, you know, just making my way around. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> in the snow in the cellar, though? <laughs> it's raining. It's not some snowing of your, anymore. Some of your photos were great. Skiing in your vineyards and stuff. That was excellent. It was... Um, the 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 craziest story that I've heard I don't and I haven't said this to you but Corbin Cam- Corbin Ming of Corbin Cameron yeah left Yauntville on Thursday evening right at about nine o'clock at night and it took him three hours to get up the hill he got stopped they made it he was in like in a car not in a truck I guess they made him the firefighters made him leave his car on the side of the road put him in this car. And the, you know these that's where a ton of those photos were coming from these firefighters on cavedale and trinity thursday night there's already like six inches of snow on the ground right and then if you've ever been to corbin cameron's moon ridge vineyard you know how crazy this is they dropped him off at the bottom of his driveway which is the steepest driveway i've ever been on <laughs> and it's at least a half a mile if not more and this is over dms corbin goes all i had was a headlamp a bottle of water and my will to live. <laughs> and I was like, sounds like a Jack London story, which is, you know, Jack London hung out up there. It was, uh, it's, it's been a wild few days of, of weather. That's for sure. Snowballs on the, on the mountain. And it's, it's not it. like it's, I mean, the snow level's just a little bit above my commas mountains right now. Snowball's right. like 3000 feet right. this far South. So it's, it hasn't, and it I, hasn't really I, warmed I, up. Yeah. I mean, I drove up, to adopt off Dana, one of his friends, and they live out kind of off of River Road. And I got the full shot of like the hills, Alexander Valley Hills. Right. It looks like the Sierra Foothills. Right. It looks like I mean, the, the Alps. It's, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's seven crazy. inches of rain so far this week. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what you don't know is it's premier Napa Valley this week. So we actually right. imported the snow for. <laughs> The aesthetics <laughs> per Napa style. <laughs> the mustard wasn't enough. The mustard's played out. What do we need? We need snow-capped mountains. We need higher bids <laughs> and Place prettier views. Yeah, it worked. apparently it worked though. Yeah. That was like, looks like Colorado around here. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and so on the mustard with the snow-capped mountains, Arnold Drive. Right there at the Leveroni's the property. Most dangerous stretch of road in America right now. Yeah, people people going out like the, the gate that was locked. People opening the gate, going out into right. their field. Pulled over um, on the side of the road. Yeah, yeah. 
taking pictures. You turns in the middle of yeah, Arnold Drive. I've, I've, it's like my normal route home. I've been right. avoiding it because it's so like people just pulling. You know, it's worse than it ever was at Buckland's property with the mustard and the tourists. It's just like people pulling over and taking. I mean, it's they're stunning photos. They have to be right. the oak trees, the mustard, the my whatever. I'm cold. I'm <laughs> sick the of only it. picture I'm bummed that I didn't get. I was trying to get a the cherry blossoms in the foreground on a right. cherry tree and then the snow in the background to just kind of show how <laughs> crazy it was that it was this like, you know, we thought spring was coming. Uh, I mean, you know, the question is, is those mountain vineyards like these vines are getting cold. Like, yeah. is is it going to push back bud break? I mean, I know everybody, the people I've talked yeah. to have said the nice thing is, is everything's truly dormant. Nothing's right. pushing. No, you know, nothing like that. But I mean, sap had to be, I mean, sap is flowing up. Right. With the weather we had leading up to this. I think so. Uh, I, you know, I don't, it, this, I mean, it's truly unprecedented to have this much snow here, here this time of year. So I, I my expectation is definitely a later vintage with higher yields, but you know, with with warmer temperatures in the spring, that could all change. Right. So yeah, it's all. It's like <laughs> we think something, and then you know, we we haven't had a vintage with any sort of consistency for you know a while. So like, since one <laughs> since Jesus turned water into wine, yeah. it's been all downhill that, that since was, that. that was we were so smug in California. California for so long we didn't have deal with hail actually did you see last year the Rhone had a hail tornado yes that was fascinating I mean you know talk about they bury weather stories though there you know also yeah you know, there there have been rainstorms and hailstorms in Burgundy in in August that they've never acknowledged so <laughs> well you know it's a better marketing uh better marketing company than the Napa Valley uh, marketing group right which is the best, <laughs> which is the best right? <laughs> everything's always perfect um, and I know we have a guest today but can I can we talk about something kind of bizarre that I saw and I, Sam, I kind of wanted to get your take on it. So in Champagne, they're using pigs in the vineyards. Oh, I saw that article too. Did you see that? Yeah. They said that sheep are lazy, that they will go through and just eat the stuff they that they want to yeah. eat, but that pigs eat everything. I thought it was kind of interesting. I never heard that before. I think it's because a Napa company's probably invested in pigs. <laughs> well, so. I mean, Hansel is using pigs and they've run them through the vineyard. Um, but there, they have to be a non-rutting pig breed. Yeah, I mean, I think that like we're all looking for the perfect ruminating animal for the vine. I, I don't. I mean, if the sheep are too lazy and the goats are, I, the pigs are destructive. But aren't they like, smart too? Aren't pigs smarter than sheep? Isn't that the sort of the silver lining of sheep? Is that. you can kind of corral the sheep in right. different ways. They say they are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who says the pigs or the sheep? <laughs> but I've seen the pigs. I think don't at Tobles Creek. Don't Jason uses the pigs, but in the forest, it's like a deforestation. Yeah, thing. that's what they're doing in Hansel. Okay. Yeah, I would. It even the sheep and the goats kind of terrify me because you know you're letting a wild not a wild animal, just domesticated animal, but you're putting an animal that isn't like a f fine tool kind of a blunt object out into your vineyard where 
things like little changes mean, especially this time of year, can be drastic differences by the end of the growing season. So I, I would not. The sheep seem like they're working. Right. I don't think I would do pigs. But you know what? It's champagne. They can do whatever the fuck they want. And they're still going to sell it all. <laughs> do, do, do the vines ever get eaten? Well, I mean, again, if you leave if you leave the sheep and goats out there when there's green stuff growing, sure, they'll eat them. Oh, yeah. You know, the goats would probably eventually start chewing on. Goats will eat the irrigation hoses yeah. and yeah. whatever else. Seems, Not smart. Goats. Seems <laughs> chewy. Yeah. yeah. No, well, when you leave the goats in charge of the mechanical harvesters, that <laughs> that's really good. Only the smart Wow. <laughs> I mean, labor issues are bad, but I don't know if they've gotten that bad. There's a surreal mess out there. No, I would say keep your, keep your pigs in the forest. I don't know. Yeah, let them hunt up uh, truffles. Truffles, yeah. yeah no, exactly. that's the thing is the, tr the pigs eat the truffles. Right. They'll stop using the pigs for the truffle hunting because the pigs find them and... As you would if you were, like, digging and found truffle. You'd eat it before anybody else found it. <laughs> At least I would. <laughs> all right. Well, Brian's already finished this first glass this of such wine. such a Brian wine, so, first of all. Well, well, look at the wine. Right? So Thank let's you. Get let's talk about wine. Speaking no. of truffles. <laughs> How did you get to Napa? So I, uh, I started in, um, in finance. I was valuing mines as most winemakers begin. Um, no, <laughs> so I was, I, I wanted to work on wall street when I was, uh, in college and I, um, I graduated at 08. So that was a great year to start on wall street. Okay. Grew, but, but grew up where and went to college where I grew up in Sacramento. So my family's been in California for five generations inexplicably at this point. Um, and I wanted to get out, go see the world, went up to Seattle, and I went to University of Washington and I loved economics and wanted to get a practical degree in that field. So I chose finance. And um, I just had this fantasy of being a trader on Wall Street. I wanted to work at the floor of the stock exchange. And as I saw less and less people working on the floor of the stock exchange, that dream started to take flight. And then I um I was like okay well I'll work at a, a hedge fund or something you know sexy like that and so I started doing that in college and uh, doing internships and in finance and um and then I uh, graduated and went and worked in a mutual fund for about a year and I watched the stock market nosedive fifty percent sitting at a desk with four screens in front of me it was a very exciting day um, I know someone who was doing this same sort of thing. It was, yeah, it was a marvel. So I knew my job was probably not going to. You were much more focused in college than I was. I well, that's that's. I think that's the that was the problem. Now I'm in wine, so it was just like I was very very focused for a long time and had this linear career trajectory. And then my first harvest was like, well, I never took a semester abroad, so I'm going to make this horrible financial decision. <laughs> start working harvest um but so i don't know it's you know the the jury's out on if that was a smart decision or not but um but yeah so i started in finance and then i uh found myself in another job in san francisco a couple years after the recession um valuing mines 
and um, the valuing want mines. mines. What does so, that mean? Yeah. So that For means I was that... so so. You look at <laughs> this is this is why you. For those of us who are quite so focused. This in is gold. why <laughs> this is why you brought me on the podcast, right? We're going to talk about gold oh, and yeah. bauxite. Yeah. So the um the you value a mine by looking at the projection of assets in the ground. So you think, oh, there's this much gold and it requires this much resources in order to extract that from the ground. And then you look at a year to year basis of what the plan is for that mine. And then you discount that back using whatever interest rate you would have to finance the project with. And then you come up with the value of that mine. And so we actually use that philosophy for wine. Which right. is I was why say, do you use that? Yeah. So we valued um so my boss came up with a value with a way to value um land and take a part of that value and attribute it to an intangible asset. So like a brand name is an intangible asset. And if you purchase a brand name, you can depreciate it against your taxes for 10 years. Now this is a tax podcast. Um, and so oh, this is fascinating. So, actually. Yeah. The season. Yeah. so yeah, exactly. It's just, just relevant. Um, so, but if you buy land, you can't depreciate it. It's a non-depreciable asset. So, really big wineries like Gala that are buying big expensive vineyard sites want to take a portion of that land value and change it into a depreciable asset. So that's what we did is we found a way and we had to defend it with the SEC to say this portion of the value is attributed to Napa Valley or attributed to Sonoma County so or whatever as part vineyard. of the purchase. And the way we did that is we did um, we looked at what a wine project would be like if you put California on the label and then what the wine project the value of that project would be if you put Napa Valley on the on the label how much of that is Napa and could you do it in Sonoma now I think you can do it in Sonoma now because of one of the original projects that I worked on was Edna Valley and I think you know I would argue that Sonoma is at least as you know valuable certainly parts of it are yeah, more what do valuable you think, Vicky but like, but we did, we did. So, but we did, I did the Stag's Leap acquisition and I did an Edna Valley acquisition and a few others. And I wanted to, I thought I had this fantasy. I was, you know, like 26. I had this fantasy of being a wine VP. I thought that would be a fun title to have. And so I went out and I tried to, I tried to be the, the managing director of wine is my end goal. And I realized I would have to get every wine deal in the industry if I wanted that to be my primary role because they weren't you know, these large wine deals weren't super frequent. So, um, so I gave that up and I worked at Constellation. So I went over to Constellation and thought I could take the sort of hybrid approach to my interest in wine that was spurred by these wine valuation projects and go work at a big wine company. So I worked in like the consulting side of Constellation. I worked on the national pricing team for about a year and a half. And I realized after, you know, one, my job didn't really change that much. I was still just using a lot of spreadsheets and I was talking about Chardonnay instead of bauxite and aluminum and gold and oil and gas. Um, and so it didn't really change the functionality of my job that much. It wasn't giving, you know, wasn't the it wasn't the romantic side of wine it was just the other side of wine so i went into my boss's the office side of wine. the actual side of wine and i in the meantime i had gone up to napa valley i'd met a winemaker that produced a small a couple small projects and i just started to 
work on the side on the weekends, come up and wash barrels, do whatever menial tasks I was qualified to do at that point and learn about wine. And I just thought it would be my fun, eccentric side hobby. Was my, wine in your life at that point? I, I, you know, I was drinking wine. I'd always enjoyed wine, but it was coming up here and working with a small, you know, in a small facility and getting hands-on experience that really um, spurred me to want to, you know, just throw down my cards and go for it full time. But that was definitely part of it. So that was that was in 2010. So I was working in finance and I was coming up to the Napa Valley on the weekends learning about wine. Then I quit, tried to, you know, make it work with Constellation for about a year and a half, learned a lot, um, got a real top down approach to our industry. But ultimately, the day to day was not different than my prior job. And I wanted to be more in the cellar. I wanted to be more into production than I was. Um, so I just quit and I started working harvest. And uh, my first harvest was with the prisoner. Yeah. So. Okay. I got so many questions. So, so, <laughs> so, so was, that from, was that from a connection to Constellation? No, I just, that was a blind application. I think my career in finance gave me a lot of kind of cool opportunities in wine because I used those skills, like my spreadsheet skills or PowerPoint or data organization skills really to help these larger projects. So when I worked with the prisoner, I was doing the, you know, $14 an hour job or whatever, where you go and you sample the the vineyards. But I was working very intimately with the winemaker and the assistant winemaker on improving their spreadsheets and improving how they manage their many, many vineyard sites. And it was right after the Dave Finney sale. So there was a lot of sort of data movement and whatnot. And so rather than it being a three month internship, it was a nine month internship because I stuck around for a lot longer to help them as long as I could. And then I got, I started taking classes at that point, you know, in chemistry and biology and all these things that I missed in undergrad. And, um, and then I started working with Quintessa because they're, uh, they had a new viticulturist who's actually the viticulturist over at uh, Matthias and now Caleb Mosley. And he was running a whole bunch of trials on their project and really needed someone like me to come and help manage all of that data in that vineyard. And so then I got this long internship with Quintessa where I was managing our analysis of that vineyard um, for Quintessa and then working in the cellar there. So it was a lot of like, I was learning as I was going, but I was still using this former skill set to get more opportunities. Wait, so, okay, so I got a few questions. One of them, because I think it's directly related to California history. What, what are what mines are you valuing? Like, is this? <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, because we vacation every year, we go up to basically yeah. to gold country. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know there's still gold in them, our hills. But is there people like still to this day companies that look for? gold mines and silver mines and uh, well so most of my it's i believe and i haven't looked at this for a while but i believe it's illegal to mine in california there's quarries but i don't think you can mine like gold here at least it's probably prohibitively yeah regulatorily the, right difficult so in nevada probably yeah so yeah. we had a lot of mine mines in in terms of the united states it was nevada alaska texas um some parts of the interior of the country and they were often different projects. Like there would be the core thing you were mining, like gold. And then there would all be all these tertiary metals that would also right. come out of the ground. So 
a lot of the projects, like the biggest ones we were valuing, like we valued the largest copper mine in the world to come on board, which was out of Mongolia. And then we would value big projects for like Rio Tinto and Brazil and stuff. My managing director at that time was a mining engineer. So hmm. it was a really interesting way to start in really any industry because you immediately take this top down approach to what you know, what is so, like, I mean, the reason I love value, I loved, and I still it, like the concepts of it, valuing companies is because you, you have to value it into perpetuity. That's how you come up with a discounted cash flow. So you value like, you know, you have five, 10, 15 years of projections, and then you come up with this final number that assumes that company is going into perpetuity, and then you discount it backwards from there. So I'd have to like show you on a spreadsheet. I did not bring my computer because I thought we were drinking wine today. (laughs) To be honest, you could show us on a spreadsheet. We're probably still not going to get it. That's super cool, though, and what a great useful tool to then translate to vineyards, though. That's a really cool thing to have learned. Well, what I'm thinking about here is in sort of the time since you were doing that work, all these big vineyard purchases. Acquisitions. Like like Gallo buying Stagecoach. And I'm sure that that tool that you came up with for figuring out the brand value of the vineyard so that they could take some depreciation on it and take a little tax. Oh, I. Right. The vineyard, the the, but yeah, so you have you have but you have a brand name vineyard, right? Well, is even yeah. more has even more value than an appellation, right? Or a or a county or a state. Well, does Moon Mountain mean anything then? Extra. Monterosso yeah. certainly does. Moon Mountain is is climbing in. I think what value. you would what you would have to do is the way that we did it is we proved that this certain area was worth more than like the larger area around it. So that was a pretty easy case with Stag's Leap, but I think that you would have a hard, like a, a more uphill battle with Stagecoach because the the Napa Valley and the AVA that it's in Atlas Peak is already a very valuable asset and it's more proven. And you have, when you're defending a valuation of something, you have to have a lot of examples. You have to have a lot of kind of reference points for that valuation to prove it. And so there would be more reference points for Atlas Peak as a valuation and you could then then for a particular vineyard yeah Yeah. so i would you know um so that would be you know some of the issues with that but i um it definitely helps when i was thinking about my brands that i wanted to um work with and produce it did help me think about what creates value for those brands or those wines. And that's not what drives me. I'm, you know, just as, I don't know, um, fanciful as any other winemaker. I just love the wine from this particular site and I want to make it and I fantasize about it. And I have this, I I set myself up, I think at this point as being this very analytical person, but I had this other side of myself that was really into English. And I found myself in these, you know, um, literature classes in college where we were looking at you know old english texts and stuff and i was just like here come on you gotta focus like you have to pick a side um and one side made money and the other side didn't so you know (laughs) and then there everybody you have it and then and then i just threw that away you know (laughs) i'm gonna make wine i just like this is yeah this is fun but now i'm gonna switch over and you know but 
So this is so the wine that we're drinking. Yeah. Speaking oh. of that, yeah. um, the wine that we're drinking is the one of the first Olivia Brion wines that I started making, and it does play into that kind of fantasy. Olivia Brion, just to give us a little quick overview, since we're listening to this, not watching it, is um, is a brand that uh, tells the story of women from history, and Olivia Brion's a fictional character in each. If the brand was a, a novel, you know, me enjoying writing, it kind of plays into that. Each label would be a chapter in her life. So I like to highlight a fun adventure that a trailblazing woman from history would have taken on the label and tell that story. And Olivia Brion, sort of the main character, is the stand-in. Um, and this wine that we're drinking right now is the Taquin White Blend. Taquin's an old French word. It means playful, vexing, mischievous. And it kind of it, it alludes to the wine along with the story because I think this is a really fun, playful white wine. Um, it was more I love white wine, but I find myself disappointed in a lot of the iterations of it in California because, it, you know, there's there's the kind of the overripe model and whatnot or the very, you know, searing acidity. It's going to take it off of your enamel, off your teeth type of thing. And I and I love Roan Whites. And so I thought, well, I think I can make something like that in California, but I have to find the right combination of things. So it was more of like a white wine I had in my head. And I spent, you know, I've done a lot of different combinations of vineyard sources and varietals for this particular wine. What's the blend? So the blend of this final one, and this is the first time I've done back-to-back the same vineyard sources, is 52% Viognier, 36% Gewurztraminer, and 12% Chardonnay. And the Viognier is from Shake Ridge Ranch, and um, the Gewurztraminer is from almost 50-year-old vines in Russian River Valley, right on Olivet Road. And then the 12% of Chardonnay is from the Dry Creek AVA. So it's just the the my approach to this wine is trying to put in a bottle what I love about white wine, which is a lot of perfumey aromas and a really nice arc of acidity and then ending on roundness rather than bitterness. So just kind of smoothing out the palate so that you can kind of continue to enjoy it. So this is my white wine fantasy. <laughs> I thought it was Chardonnay when we poured it, but then I tasted it and it was completely different and beautiful, really nice. That Viennese. That's what gives it the bouquet, right? Absolutely. Well, the the Gewurztraminer consistently has these honeysuckle aromas that are just so fragrant. Um, but it it makes kind of a simple palette on its own. And so the Viognier, I pick it. It's a bowl-shaped black. So I pick it when it's ripe kind of in the middle of the bowl. So it gets a little caramelized notes on top, a little kind of um, slightly ripe peel, you know, citrus peel notes at the bottom of it. And it actually makes quite a complex wine just in that you know, lone fermenter and then adding that sort of those hedonistic, um, you know, aromas from the Gewurztraminer. And then when I try to just do those two on their own, it is a little um, severe on the finish. So I just add that little tiny bit of Chardonnay to kind of round it. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I love it. It's totally awesome. This is totally a Brian wine. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I look, I saw it on the website. But just the blend. I so like, did I. Fingers crossed. Hope she's the bringing The idea of blending Viennier and Gewurztraminer mm-hmm. uh, seems to it just like nobody. I don't know if anybody else is doing it, but it seems like it makes a lot of sense. You know, with those sort of the simplicity of Gewurztraminer on the palate, but it's super interesting aromatically. Yeah. And then you add that, you know, the honey to the, to the peaches of Viognier. Uh, and then a little malactic fermentation on this on the Chardonnay to 
soften the finish. Nice mouthfeel. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally brilliant concept. Totally. It's like, I, I, it's like you really analytical and figured these things out way better than somebody else. I don't no, know how did it. I, I think it's, I think, I think it was just, you know, I, I had the opportunity to work with these different blocks and taste them and then just kind of, you know, it took a lot of just playing with it over the years. I had tried a little bit of orange muscat. I had tried some vermentino. I tried, you know, just different things. And the vermentino had this really um, kind of metallic taste that you had to kind of um, deal with. And, you know, just different things. And it and all is um, for me, I just love California. So I'm just trying to showcase what California can do that is, you know, different from different parts of the world. And that's, you know, for me, that's kind of this wine. But then the next one we're going to taste is a Russian River Pinot Noir, you know, innovative. <laughs> Groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. <laughs> how did you come up with the idea? <laughs> Wait, and before we pour that, how did, how did you get that first... How did you get in contact with someone that said you could come up and just wash barrels out? So I was living in San Francisco at the time, and my uh, best friend lived in uh, the house of this guy whose family was pretty wealthy, and they had a property up. She, you know, she rented a room basically, and his family owned a vineyard and a little winery in Napa. And I, as I was getting into wine, I would see that. Um, he had these kind of wine spectators in his apartment and you know, he was like, I didn't know him that well, but we started talking a little about wine and he said, Oh, you know, you, you like this, you should go meet my winemaker. And I was like, that's a pretty odd statement, but you know, okay, like, please do tell. Um, and he just gave me a phone number and said, Oh, you know, if you want to go, um, he makes a little, you know, we don't make a lot of wine, but a little wine. So I went up and just, took you know on a lark met this winemaker in napa and um i started and working who was that? david mahaffey okay yeah and so he had founded olivia brion on the wild horse ava and it just had a two skews just pinot and chardonnay and then um i just started working with him on the side the 10 vintages when i met him the 11 vintages is the first one that i really helped with you know, mainly dusting all the mold off of Pino from all the rain that vintage. Um, but, wow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, you know, it was, uh, you know, if that vintage didn't turn you off from the industry, then, you know. And, and, and can you clarify <laughs> going into the wine business in 2011 is like going into the finance industry in 2008. Well, I know. I, really had, nailed those I had some real great starts <laughs> to my career. Yeah. Can you clarify for our listeners? And maybe a few people at the table where Wild Horse Appalachian is. Never, I had never heard of it before. I'd I had heard of it, but it's now I, the, I think I know where it is. It's in the southern part of Napa, so laterally, very similar to Carneros. But you right. go up the hill into um, like so what's like called kind of Green American Valley. Canyon? No, I mean it's above. It's like you know the elevation is about. 1200 feet or so so it's above so it's kind of like if you went just south from atlas peak so if like you know by a by a, what is it a dove's flight or something if you fly slightly as south as a crow flies Dove slightly south yeah romantic way yeah but, but much more kind of, sporadic and doves yeah doves don't yeah. fly in a straight line like a crow yeah. does you know? crows, crows focus <laughs> learn something new every day <laughs> so, so um, this portion of the podcast brought to you by the audubon society <laughs> And doves. <laughs> so, and Prince. Well, yeah, and I was going to say, yeah, Prince uh, reference in there. <laughs> so 
<laughs> the next one. So, so the so the project just really started around Pinot, which it makes sense for us to be drinking a Pinot. Um, thank you for pouring that part. Um, so the um, and and that vineyard site that burned in the seventeen fires and was you know kind of eminently going to be sold after that. So I started working. Um, with Olivia Brion in 16, um, wanting to just make some commercial wine on the side. I was still working in, you know, larger wineries at the time. So I made a couple SKUs and just took financial responsibility for those SKUs. Um, I made a Shake Ridge Tempranillo and I made a Mendocino Rosé, a direct-to-press Rosé. I came back from Provence and I was just like, I want to do that. And yeah. That was... Um, so did you so did you work in Provence? No, no, just, I just visited. Yeah. It was my last romantic trip with my husband before we started having kids. So, <laughs> so, so now we have two. Yeah. So, so David had started the brand, and and you and you, I started you, to work with it, and he was looking at retirement. Right. I think the fires were definitely a component of that. That was really demoralizing in seventeen, and then of course in twenty. But he had already started on that trajectory. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty cool because you obviously, the little bit we've gotten to know you, you can see that, like, you obviously identified with the Olivier Brion idea. I like the, I like telling the historical stories. I love yeah. talking about history. And um, so I, I, I had fun with those cool. stories. And then I wanted, when I started making the wine, instead of just using the same label over and over, I wanted to take her on new adventures. And then I kind of shifted the marketing for Olivia Brion to being this woman that goes on all these different adventures. And those adventures are inspired by the lives of real women. So on the Taquin label, we just had the life is of the, the labels inspired by the life of Annette Kellerman, who was this Australian Olympic swimmer from the early 1900s who really had to create swimwear for women in order to swim because at the time you had to wear this full tunic the one from your collarbone to your ankles often made out of wool and the first time she attempted the english channel she was forced to wear that and her male competitors were allowed to swim nude um i'm not sure you'd want to be nude in the english channel but yeah. Um, <laughs> but suffice like it to say, right. it was, other than the drowning part of it, yeah, it was, it was a little, it was a little uneven. So she, she really created swimmer that, um, you know, out of just different materials, she cut up and whatnot, so that women could swim when women and athlete weren't words that went right. together at the time. Right. So she, um, and one of the, you know fun parts of her story that I immortalize on the label is in um, when she was in Massachusetts, she was kind of on the beach in one of her swimsuits and got arrested for wearing a too small bathing suit. And it was of her own design. And I actually highlight one that's a little racier than on the label than what she even wore. But um, but she took that bit of notoriety and started a line of swimmer called Dunnette Kellerman's. And that's the genesis of modern swimmer for women. So, um, you know, it's a, a trailblazer, a pioneer and a, you know, and a, a fun, a fun lady. <laughs> she she actually uh, choreographed swim sequences for early Hollywood silent films, too. So she just had this really. Wait, is that you know, the where there's a bunch of them and they're yeah they shoot it from up above? And yeah, and they're in like big shells and like fascinating. And, and she she has yeah, if you look up a Nat Kellerman, she has some wild swimsuits that she designed yeah. for Hollywood and in war. So, and yeah. she was the first woman to appear quote nude in a film. She had um. She you she mean, didn't like, like her shoulders. Were yeah bare. yeah like they, she like she had a she had a like a mermaid tail and her hair over you know her body and stuff. But she she was yeah so she I mean she had she had fun she had a fun yeah. life, yeah. and she um and she made it so we could swim and not drown so that's useful. 
<laughs> and that's the and that's the white blend. That's the white blend. So that's Taquin. And then the Pinot is the original story that David had come up with. And his inspiration was the life of um Annie Chomsky. She uh, she was uh, riding her. She rode her bike around the world, and she's the first recorded woman to ride a bike around the world. And you know, she didn't ride across the Atlantic Ocean. She took a boat, but she rode as much as she could. She had um, the first you know, chef cycle. Yeah, she exactly. and she she would and she actually she got a couple guys to bet her ten thousand dollars that she wouldn't finish this ride, and that was about three years' salary for a guy at the time. This was in the late late eighteen hundreds, and she checked in with all the American embassies across the world, and she collected. So she nice. made quite a bit of money, and she changed her last name on the ride to advertise a water company. So she changed her last name to Londonderry. So she's known kind of in history as Annie Londonderry to advertise. London Dairy Water Company, because um, any article she was a sponsored athlete, yeah, and she only had a few days cycling experience before she left. Sponsored athlete, as opposed to modern day sellout. Yeah, she's well, she was an early, early, early influencer. Right, <laughs> right. right. early, early, early. I'd, so I'd take the money. Yeah, <laughs> those, you know, I mean, it was last name to be right. It was a, it was a, you know, kind of a. I mean, as a, as a mom of two, was, she was, she had three young kids under six too. So I understand the impetus of wanting yeah. to ride around the world but you know like, <laughs> just keep riding before they learn how to ride bikes just keep going just keep going get no. on the road like do you pick what is the shortest route or do you pick what is the nicest weather in you know what i mean like yeah. how would you go about determining I, how the route you're going to take for that I, what are countries that aren't at war currently right. that which countries are going to let a woman ride a bike through flattest well, roads exactly well, women, right. no women mountains could, yeah i mean women would get arrested for wearing pants in different areas at that point you know so i mean it was it was a wild thing to do at that point and in and today it would feel kind of insane to do so you know, it's just, you know, really, really a trailblazing lady, quite literally. And um, and this wine. So with the Pinot, I really wanted to use several different winemaking techniques um, as a wait, why? Just because I I did a I liked when I first make a wine, I like to create kind of a benchmark vintage for myself. So the 18 was sort of a benchmark vintage where I made it very classic to traditional California Pinot Noir making. So I just stemmed everything, open top fermenters for a couple of weeks, you know, long barrel aging, um, but very light touch. And I wanted to bring a little more tannin out of that site. And so I used some whole cluster. I used a fermenter with 50% whole cluster. I used a fermenter with 30% um, stem addition. So just slightly different tannin profile. And then I used the traditional whole berries. And then on top of that, I used about 20% French oak just to kind of frame the wine nicely, not give it an overpowering vanilla flavor or anything like that. Yeah. And I try to keep the alcohols on the lower side um, just because I feel like when they get too too high you lose some of the aromas and for olivia brian i really like to have those intense aromatics in the wines yeah so. no, that's great yeah so i noticed I all the distinction between whole cluster and stem edition i think that's really an important note that um for winemakers and wine drinkers out there there's a difference between whole cluster and then destemming and and adding stems, which I'm assuming what you did is you added stems back into right. the fermentation. Yeah. There's a little more control there, a little more like... Well, I was able to like taste the stems and really look at the, you know, closely at the lignification and decide because I, you know, I don't have a dogma around 
stem addition, but I don't want to add, you know, a tremendous amount of green to the wine. Right. And it's and it is a source of green tannin, just like seeds are. So, you know, I look at it as not, you know, I'm not going to do a whole cluster every year. I didn't do a lot of whole cluster last year because the it ripened so quickly that it ripe, didn't lignify right. the stems at all. Right. You know, the, the grapes ripened so fast and then it left the stems behind. So it's definitely a year by year, um, you know. And that's more than ever you have to be that way because vintages are varying so much. Reference first part of show. Thank you. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows if we'll be using stems in 2023. Who knows if we're going to have, get you know, we could totally be looking at a cold, wet cycle through the season. You know, I mean, it could be one of those years where... We have those cold wet. I mean, not that anybody's going to complain about it, but it could be a 2011 kind of situation. Sure. I mean, the 2011 winter was cold, wet, heavy snow winter, um, late spring, never really, you know, rain during harvest. Yep. We could totally be setting one of those up or it could, you know, the sun could come out on March 15th and never go away until December. <laughs> How was the yield and quality in 2011? Uh, yields were lower. Quality was a kind of a mixed bag. It was classically like a quote unquote winemaker's vintage. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. I was like, it sounds trite, but I just felt like there was just so much variation in whoever was managing those pick decisions and those fermentations. And I mean, overall, the vintage kind of got kind of got ignored, but there were very good wines that came out of 2011. Well, one of my favorite, it was one of my favorite vintages from my yeah. prior winery. Yeah. So I, I went through different harvests and then I worked on the winemaking team at Alpha Omega for four years. And when I was leaving, you know, you get a discount on the Skipped wine. over so. that part. Yeah. yeah we had like, <laughs> fast What was forward. that discount? <laughs> need some of that discount. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, you know, I, 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 you know, it was one of my favorite vintages that I, you know, tasting that years later was, I thought, you know, quite elegant. How, how many years so, were you at Alpha Omega and, and I was at happen? 15. So I, I jumped around harvest and then, um, I came back, I managed the lab at Molly Duker in Australia. Cool. Um, and then I wanted to come back and I thought I was just going to do another harvest. Frankly, I was looking at applying for graduate school and, um, and I ended up getting my full-time job with AO just um, on their winemaking team as their production assistant. And then I worked my way up over four years and ran enology research. Mm-hmm. So we were chasing our 100 point score from Robert Parker at the yeah. time. Um, you know, it always kind of like edged it, not gotten it. So, uh, and we we had a big budget Is for that enology an research. Thing? Well, 99 I, plus. 99 plus, yeah. It's not 100. It's not a, it's not a 100. I know. Vineyard owner going. <laughs> How come it's a 99 plus and not a hundred? I know. So we were, so I got to do a lot of these trials. Again, the, you know, the analytics I got to do, um, I, I want, you know, aromatics and wine is a real big, um, I don't know, just draw, right? You you always want to do everything you can to well, try to bites you in, right? right. Like there, yeah, I, I, there's a lot of wines that I you go to smell them and you're like, oh, I don't smell anything, and then you, you drink it and you're like, oh, there's something there on the palate, but that the aromas are what 
and draw that's, you into the wine. And it's that's, like the come hither. And it's one of the challenges, right, for for Napa Valley for Cabernet winemaking. I would say yeah. across the board because Cabernet winemaking to get a lot of the silky notes, the glycerin, you need a hotter fermentation. But when you get hotter fermentations, you start to lose the aromas because right. your evaporative loss is yeah. faster. So I found this company in Canada that used this membrane technology on top of fermenters that would push the volatile aromas back into the wine and then release the CO2. And then I found this cooperage that was willing to work with me. We bought several you know, barrels from them. Um, to We did a lot of um, barrel fermentations at Alpha Omega due to space, but also the tannin profile that we were looking for. And so we would take the heads off and do the fermentations in the barrels. And so I, um, I worked with a cooperage to come up with a, a punch down device that would go inside of the barrel. So it would be like a stainless steel head with a punch down device. And then I was with- using manually. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you're doing manual punch yeah, downs. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. I worked with this Canadian company to create this uh, membrane for the top of these uh, four barrels, you know, would be on a pallet. And then I had this kind of little brain thing on top that was the membrane that would push the volatile aromatics back into the It was the like wine. a shower cap in some it, Well, we, it was more of like a... I don't know. It was more like a black box. It was more like a big kind of box thing uh-huh. with the membrane inside. Like all the barrels. Yeah, it was sat like it kind of sat in the middle of the the barrel fermentations, and then there was these you know punch down devices that were um, you know you would work very slowly uh, okay. to yeah, kind yeah. of rotate the cap inside of the barrels, and so. Um, I, you know, I, I, I left, so I, that was in the 18 vintage and I left after that to do Olivia Brion full time. So I, you know, I did, I wasn't there for the blending session to know for sure, sure. but that was the wine we got a hundred points on. So, so. <laughs> so. mic drop, I'm out of here. There's your hundred points. Here's your points. I'm going to go make some peanut <laughs> So, so wait a minute though. Um, my question is, is what it was the, the tokelot. It was the tokelot. Right. <laughs> So yeah. <laughs> what did what did the cellar crew think of the um, membranes and all of that? Was that a like? I mean, I think they thought I was a little bit crazy, but I <laughs> I, I I mean, I was like I you know I I was not anymore. I was yeah. man- <laughs> I was managing it. You know, I would go and punch it down and check it every day and, and- show them. Oh, it's not that much of a pain. Yeah, well, I don't know. They probably still thought I was a pain because I would do lots of. I was I was just always you know, trying a much, a, a ton of different things. I actually, one of my favorite projects was I worked with, um, Luca Vietti in Italy. I wanted to do a submerged cap trial, but I had this like fantasy in my head of how to use a porta tank for a submerged cap trial and then designed this sort of grate to sit into it. And I was emailing with him and found someone to, you know, fabricate it for me. And then that is probably still like in the yard at Alpha Omega somewhere. My submerged <laughs> cap device. I was currently just, getting rained I on. Craigslist last week. Yeah, and I remember the seller team, they would always see my, my submerged cap fermentation would always bubble over and I'd have to go siphon out of it and dump the wine into another tank and they'd always come up to my office like, here, you know, your wine's bubbling over again and I have to go and siphon it out. <laughs> they weren't going to do that for you. Yeah, like it's your, your problem. <laughs> this is not our problem. I know. <laughs> All right, that's so awesome. yeah, so I got thank you that or you're pointing at the Pinot. Thank you. All right, where would we start on these next three so wines? The, so I have the Cantadora wine. So these are new. So this is a great segue because this was me just as a 
you know, winemaker in a playground type of thing. I really love Rhone's. They're one of my just, you know, they're they're the driving force in the industry for me. I just love a great Rhone blend. Same here. Exactly. They're they're wonderful. They're just the best. They're the friendliest wines. You can drink them with everything. And anyways, I, I love Rhone's. And I love Shake Ridge Ranch. I love working with Ann Kramer. And I wanted to do something really special when I finally got the Rhone's. You know, you have you have to be on the wait list for the vineyard and whatnot. And so I started working with her in 16, but it took me a while to get Rhone's. Does she need to talk with uh, Jasmine about the fig getting in there? <laughs> Who? Oh, yeah. Some of these wines? Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant with Ann Kramer. I'm like, wait a minute. I think we have our own sources. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're good on the on the Rones. But yeah, so the um so the Rones, so I wanted to so this first wine is um uh Cantadora the Sage. And so the each of these wines feature a woman from the Bay Area that is doing something really profound for our community and often novel. So it makes a good story to talk about. It's maybe something that, you know, doesn't get its expose in the New Yorker or something like that. And how, and how do you select the women? And then what is that conversation like when you reach out to them and you tell them what your plan is? Put your face on a wine label. Right. It was, well... And how many cases do they get for free? <laughs> <laughs> That's all my questions. <laughs> um, well, so... This wine, um, so I found the women. So originally, when I lived in San Francisco, I was a um, I volunteered at the domestic violence shelter La Costa de las Madres, and I was a shelter volunteer. I'd go in and uh, mainly do child care for the women that were at the shelter, so they could go to therapy and um, and do you know different things. And you go through forty hours of training, and you really learn a lot about um, the it's dynamics. Incredibly nice of you. <laughs> well, it wasn't, you know, it was just, I was raised by a single mom and I just feel very strongly about giving back to, to women that, you know, that when I was working at the shelter, I, I can tell you, they look exactly like anyone that, you know, you know, it's just, it's just one, you know, one decision away from, you know, being in that situation. And so, um, so I, you know, I've always wanted to to give back in that way. And so when I was working in San Francisco, I was volunteering there and then when I started making commercial wine, I started giving it back to them um, as part of their gala event each year as a donation. And then when I came up with the Cantadora project, because really because the success of Olivia Brion, Olivia Brion, people really liked the stories of women and were open to that. And people from a lot of different demographics, when I was selling the wine, I would sell it to people in oil and gas or people in pharmaceuticals or all of these different industries. And they liked the stories of Olivia Brion. And so it gave me the confidence to start talking about things that were really important to me, which was stories today of women that are I consider superheroes that are making the lives of others better on a day-to-day day basis so cantadora translates the storyteller but it also in spanish kind of has this mystical feminine reference to the word it could be like a song teller it could be keeper of the tale but there's this sort of almost magic element to that word too so i wanted to um use that so cantadora is storyteller and then i tell the stories of each of the women i really partner with them on these wines so the one that we're drinking now is um it's a Grenache uh, Syrah Viognier blend, and the Viognier is very small. I say 5% on the label, but it's really somewhere between 2 and 5%. I wanted to explore the dynamics of the Rhone fermentations that include Viognier and doing all, you know, being um, 
interested in just doing trials of everything. I did a, a Grenache Syrah Viognier fermentation, a Grenache Syrah fermentation, and I did them all them separately too, so that I could do, you know, have controls. Wow. So then I could do the blend at the end of, you know, prior to bottling so that I could really see the impact on the tannin structure of, you know, those different fermentation kinetics. And so I really liked how it layered together. I did not like one fermentation versus another. It wouldn't be a technique I use on, you know, a small yielding vintage, but a big yielding vintage like 19, it was a really fun thing to, for me to play with. So this wine that you're drinking now is Grenache Syrah with a tiny bit of Viognier, but made with these different co-fermentation and non-co-fermentation techniques. It's really nice. Beautiful. Yeah, the thing that's sort of striking to me is that it's not dominated by the Syrah. Right. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always really careful, with you know, skeptical with Rhone blends where it's like, oh, yeah, it's 50% Grenache, 50% Syrah. You're like, well, you yeah. just wasted 50% of your Grenache because right. the Syrah is going to be the dominant player. But in, in this... It's very respectful it, to the Grenache. Totally. Yeah. Really light on its feet and bright. Like, that's cool. Well, I like... I, that's one of the things I've definitely found, to your point, is when I blended the next wine we'll taste, which is... Um, over 80% Morved, um, it, I tried to do, I did the Morved Syrah co-fermentation and then Morved on its own and Syrah on its own. And I tried to add the Syrah to the blend, but it dominated the flavor profile. Like Like even at tiny percentages, yeah, even at like a small percentage, I just could not add it. And so, um, you know, it, it, it just, you know, so it just, it just fought it too much. So I, I think I like Syrah as this co-fermenter because what it has is a lot of, anthocyanin and so if you're looking to change the mouthfeel of your wine especially a tannic varietal like morved when you introduce all of that anthocyanin at the beginning of the fermentation and then morved brings all of that tannin you just create that polymeric bonding so much faster and it has more i think stick to than if you try to create it later in the life cycle of the wine so just based on the tannin research i did with alpha omega tan it, it or it's um, that silky mouthfeel comes from bonding the color molecules, anthocyanins, to the tannin molecules. And you do that so much more effectively during fermentation right. and then after it. So that was, yeah, we can taste the more Vednik. So that just to go back to the story, so the you asked me, how did I meet these women? They all kind of, this initial cohort of women all have this kind of connection to me, whereas... Um, so the last wine will taste the protector, which is the Tempranillo. That is the wine that I ended up doing for La Casa because I let the women choose their wine. So I asked La Casa, I'd like to make a wine for you. I've come up with this project. I'm going to give 10% of the sales to you guys. Um, is there anyone in your community that you'd like to introduce me to? So they introduced me to Sonia Malera who was one of the original founders of La Casa um, in 1976. And it's important to note that it's the first domestic violence shelter in California and only second in the nation in 1976. So this group of Latino women around um, Sonia um, came up with the concept of a domestic violence shelter. They thought that it only impacted their community, this issue. And so they named it La Casa de las Madres because one, they thought women wouldn't leave because they didn't have a place to take their children. So they put that in the title, you know, House of the Mothers. And then they also thought it was only, they were only going to be welcoming Spanish speakers. And so they, you know, they named it in Spanish. And then when they got more support in the San Francisco community, it came from every ethnicity, every socioeconomic background and, you know, became much more of a, uh, you know, a, a groundswell of support. So 
um, that is, this was the first woman was Sonia, which is the last wine we'll taste. Um, and then I, my mom is a visual artist and was a high school art teacher. And I really wanted to focus, you know, one of the wines on the arts community, because I think that's just so powerful as humans to, you know, what sort of differentiating factor, I guess, for us that we do, um, we, you know, employ the arts in our lives. And so, um, I found Cynthia Tom really just through a Google search because I was looking for an artist who was trying to do something altruistically for women and children. And she um, had a residency at the de Young Museum in 2011 and took that cohort of women and actually explored generational trauma using visual art. And then from that started an organization called A Place of Her Own, which uses visual art in the healing of generational trauma. Mm-hmm. And so she, I mean, I can talk about her whole story at, you know, at great length, but both of her parents were trafficked in the United States in different ways. And that is really the genesis of a lot of those issues. And she didn't discover the origins of those stories until she was in her thirties. So, um, you know, really the complex, you know, discussions around, um, she's third generation Chinese American, you know, the immigrants coming over from China at different points. Um, so, you know, I, again, we only have so much time on the podcast, but that's the next wine we'll try is the Morvette. And the one we're trying right now is Marion Page. She's an economist. Um, she founded the UC Davis Center for Poverty and Equality Research. And she is one of only three think tanks in the United States that um, uses um, a multidisciplinary approach to research and economics to really you know, uh, create structural change for our communities. So she combines the work of neurobiologists and psychologists and psychiatrists and nutritionists, and they all look at the roots of poverty and inequality. And then she sits on our uh, state's economic council and advises Governor Newsom on our state's economic policy using all of that research. So she just has a really, so I like talking about her story because she is doing something to create structural change, to, you know, to create long-term change using a lot of different people as um, a resource that are experts in their field. And I think that's a great story to tell because it's inspiring to me to know that there are people out there doing the day-to-day right. work in order to create a better future. Meanwhile, it's hailing. It just—it right. just started hailing. More snow. More snow. Meanwhile, <laughs> grapple. I learned the word, I word that way. Well, look out front. Man. I know. It's, it's, it's just really well, coming down. My phone down. just started buzzing. Yeah. You know, I have seventeen different weather apps. Um, A so, strong thunderstorm so, will impact portions of northern Marin, southeastern Sonoma County, and central Napa counties through twelve fifteen today. So that's so, right now. Light um, rain. Light rain starting in five minutes. Stop go ahead, Mark. Yeah. Not light rain. My radar, my radar app fail. That's not light. <laughs> I have a question about the graphic design on these. There's yeah. a, a gold circle around um, somewhere on the. Yeah. So know. I use I that's the only so I, I commission different um, local photographers, women photographers for the images on the labels. Um, but I also incorporate just a simple circle that really it's like if you threw it in water and you saw the ripple effect it's going to hit every community, you know, if you, okay, and that's proven you, t- you know, yeah. it's like, if you, if you change one thing here, it has a ripple effect where it hits everything else. Where so is this outside shot taken? So the outside shot that you're referring to on the protector label, yes. that's in the Marin headlands. 
Okay. And so when I Beautiful. ask the women, and then so Marion Page, the wine we were just drinking, she is shot in one of the law libraries in San Francisco or in Sacramento. So it's on top of the Supreme Court. Um, so it was, um, I just wanted to find a really historical library for her as a professor. She's the sage. Yeah. And I actually, you know, I try to put a lot of, you know, different allusions in the labels. So on the right side, I asked her to bring books, um, that inspired her career. So she brought a bunch of different economics books that are here. And then it was an old historical library that we shot in. So we found all of these different old historical labor economics books and different books about, you know, the, the topics that she's focused on her life's work. Um, and put them on this side of the label. Those are, so those are good Easter eggs. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's just so it's like I really want to for these Cantadora labels. I really want to tell the stories of these women's lives um, in order to you know kind of inform their their that that um, you know no nobody's in a vacuum, right? And so the story is really informs their impact. And it's it's also where you get your connection, right? We all get connection, you know, a deeper connection to stories right. than we do to facts. And so the emphasis is really on these stories. And also they're kind of irrefutable, right? So it makes it less um, polarizing, less political. I think people are more open to hearing the story of, like, for instance, you know, Sonia. We're drinking the Morved right now, right? Yeah, Everyone's yeah, drinking the Morved. Oh, I need the Morved. I'm enjoying so, I'm in the, the Grenache. Yeah, and it's also, uh, we haven't even talked about, I mean, we've talked about on the show before, Shake Ridge Shake and Ann Kramer, but um, such classic examples of of wine from that vineyard, um, and how you got in, the, so we got, how long is this episode going? <laughs> So we, have, we, we haven't even hit one hour. Oh, Would you pour me some of the more? Yeah, so yeah. I have a question. I noticed all of your labels have the QR code, code on the back. Yeah. I'm wondering what sort of feedback you're getting. Um, do you feel like people are using it? Uh, do you have any way to tell if anybody's using it? Um, well, I have. Yeah, I can track the usage of the QR codes online. I don't do that too much. I, you know, I really just I I was updating it for new labels, so I was able to check in. There's not a tremendous usage, but it it's growing, and I feel like with these particular brands, since they are so story entrenched, and so individual. Yeah, yeah, it really makes a lot of sense for me to be able to, you know, one, I want my label, I want people to pick up the, the wine and look at the label and be interested. And then when I put the picture with the word, you know, protector or healer or sage, I want that to be intriguing and then I want them to do this, right? I want them to turn it around and look at the back and then I have information about the wine, of course, but then also the woman and then I give them, you know, call to action with the QR code to read her story. Right. I just want to bring them deeper and deeper into this um, subject that's really important to me and, you know, kind of differentiates both both the wine and the, and the woman that I'm partnering with on the wine. So let me try the QR code. Oh, it, no, I yeah. Look it up. Of course. Worked. Yeah. Of course. Okay. God, wouldn't that be embarrassing if I said, well, it doesn't work? It doesn't work. No, no I just. Good I'm idea. Great, but it went I'm to, interested in it. It went to the prison or website. New technology. All of a sudden, I bought four, four bottles of $1,000 bottle Alpha right Omega there. Cabernet. 100 points. Yeah. 
<laughs> so the, the 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 Olivia Brion one, like the one that you're holding right now, that goes to the story of the woman. So you can see some of the original photographs of her and read the backstory yeah. of the woman along with the Olivia Brion, which is kind of the true Hollywood telling. It's like a fun, right. danceable thing that fits on the back label, but the the story of the woman's also attached to that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I what a great um, way to tell more of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, is what I thought was, you know, it just creates awesome layers. About it. Yeah. Like the winemaking, right? Yeah, We're creating right. layers. <laughs> Speaking of which, where are you making the wines? So I make them. Um, I was, I was kind of giggling when I, when I saw the prior episodes because I was like, this is a podcast sponsored by Obsidian Ridge. So I, like, I make it at Obsidian Ridge now. I, I, you know, I Goldilocks my way around a little bit and then moved to them in 21 and I've been really happy. They're a great team. Um, yeah, actually, you know, we've never had Obsidian Ridge on. There's, we're going to do it eventually, but it's Casey just... <laughs> Casey certainly has been on uh, more than a few Casey, times. Casey, and then um, Smith Story. And, uh, yeah, yeah, although they weren't, well, I guess, was she on when, when she came back? She was there, yeah, the yeah. second time. Yeah. 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 They're a good crew there. They're yeah. the seller crew. There is the best. They're awesome. They're really, really good. They've been there for a long time. They have a really dedicated small team and their yeah. facilities are great, you know? And so I've been, yeah, I've been really happy with the quality of wine I can produce for sure. So back in Sonoma, back in Sonoma, back in Sonoma, where it all starts it's over the hill. Um, so yeah, so we're focused on the Morved right now. So what do you guys think? It's it ha- like I like Morved because it's earthy, but I don't like it because it ends on a gritty note. And so I really tried to use the Saran, that co-fermentation, to create a little silkiness on the finish rather than that traditional Morved kind of. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'd... it's got all those savory, earthy, Morvedra aromatics. Yeah. But again, it's also like, you know, and I think this is a great expression of the place it has that that lift mm-hmm. um that you know that light on its feet thing that you get from shake, shake ridge wine you know yeah. you, know, you saw it through all of hardy's wines that he was making all the mavedra he was making out of there and the code uh, the wines that cody makes exactly out of there all the have that. lines yeah. and you know told him Nailed it. And, and again, the Syrah is respectful to the Mubed. Yeah. You know, twenty percent. It could, it could be under your. Yeah, thumb. I don't think you know. I don't know. Well, the Rossi Odellini, we did. It's like eighteen percent uh, Syrah with the Mubed. Again, it was a year like eighteen and nineteen, right? Where those a big crop, and you're not going to get quite the same sort of like intensity of ripeness. Yeah. Um, but yeah, totally. Like that one's way more intense than this rich you know sonoma versus shake ridge um but yeah, these are very elegant expressions totally yeah um, totally. Grapes. yeah and that's what you know that's what i like about wine is i'm yeah. very careful about the structure of it you know when i'm thinking about making it from the pick stage on I think it's. I think it was my training with Alpha Omega because we would sit down and we had a lot of fruit, but we would subdivide it into sometimes just three barrel lots. They were very small lots. So when we were sitting down to taste our reds, we would taste 170 wines, and so you didn't have time to taste for anything other than structure and faults. Right. So it would just be flights of eight real fast structure fault structure fault structure fault, and so. Yeah. That was super quintessential to my training as a winemaker was just to think in terms of what is the structure of this wine and, you know, how can I um, 
keep it as 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 clean to preserve all of those uh, vineyard air, you know dynamics as possible. Yeah. yeah. Well, how did you find your way to Shake Ridge? What was the was it a wine that you had tried from there? Um, or just your search for Rhone varietals? I was looking for Rhone varietals, and um, I don't remember, because it was 16. It wasn't that long. You know, it was more, well, so um, John Lockwood was sourcing from them, and David Mahaffey had also mentored him, and he was making a Tempranillo, and we're very different winemakers, but I, you know, I respect his style. And so I... I think I was just looking for different winemakers and where they were sourcing fruit from. And frankly, I was attracted to Anne because she was a woman. You know, it was very unusual to find a viticulturist who is a woman, woman. A badass woman, right? And so I think that was also a component of it. You know, there was a lot of winemakers sourcing from her that I respected. And then, um, and she has been so wonderful to learn from. You know, every time I go up and work with her, it's like, you know, the prices of admission is worth it. You know, it's like I learned I, I grow so much as, a, you know, as a as a wine maker, wine grower, whatever you want to call it, you know, just interacting with her. So it's it started at that point and, and just carried forward. It's so. awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, there's a beautiful wine. Totally. <laughs> Great expression of Mavedra. Yeah. And then the last wine we're tasting is the Tempranillo, which is the protector um, where the proceeds go to La Casa. So this is um, traditional and untraditional in the Rioja sense, traditional in that it's, you know, a couple years in barrel, uh, predominantly Tempranillo, about 5% Graziano. There's a little bit that comes off of a block at Shake Ridge and then a little bit interplanted into one of the blocks that I use. But I don't use 100% you know, new American oak and like in Rioja, I use 30% French oak on this. And, um, it's, you know, ideally it is a little bit more opulent of a wine than, you know, I kind of like that style of Tempranillo, but it's still tempered in the, in the structure and overall profile of it. Loving that Mavedra. Yeah. Yeah. Mavedra's. I always I, I always tell winemakers, I'm like, if you're a winemaker, you'll like this one because it'll be fun. It's like a fun playground to think about the co-fermentation with Syrah yeah. and then the overall profile of the Morvet. It's a yeah. it's definitely the one that I always pour for winemakers. Well, in the Tempranillo, not a lot of people. I mean, we know some people that work with Tempranillo, some from um, this vineyard as well, but not a lot of people play around with Tempranillo. And so it's kind of a it's, it's been, kind of a mystery wine. Yeah, for I, I mean, think for a lot of California. for a lot of normal consumers, yeah. they're not really familiar with it. Back in the, is the gold circle something they're actually holding, or is that added? No, it's something pros- they're holding. It I commissioned okay. all of the. Rate. They're all original art on the labels, so yeah. I commissioned the portraits, and then I just have the gold ring that that they hold, um, and then I kind of incorporate it into some right, of the totally. the cool element. Just to give it some some consistency because all the portra- the portraits will be so different too. So where is that gold ring today? In my closet. <laughs> <laughs> you, should, you, you should have it displayed. Oh my god, we could have done a romper room picture. <laughs> you are far too young to remember that. <laughs> I don't know. You're talking Bart, about. Bart, maybe. Well, yeah, I, I totally, Brian. Romper room. We used to watch this thing when we were kids and. Um, it was basically like watching a kindergarten class and she would 
do little lessons for the class, but she always held up the little ring and she would say, I see, a mirror. I see Johnny and Jimmy, and, <laughs> yeah. Sammy and Johnny. I see Mavedra. I see Karnash. I see Tempranillo. I see about 20% Syrah going into the Mavedra. I see hail and thunderstorms. <laughs> I see snow on the mountains. I'm just going into a tasting room in Napa, so I'll make sure I bring the wing. And um, during tastings, I can put it over my head and, and, and play I Spy like I do with my kids. <laughs> so Tell us about the tasting room. Um, so, so I'm just getting my, you know, uh, compliance, exciting stuff uh, done. The best stuff. Isn't it so much fun? The best. Just the best. Um, <laughs> so I'm getting my compliance done right now, but I'm going to be in uh, Feast It Forward in downtown Napa. So it's right across from Oxbow. It's a winery collective. Uh, with, um... But it's it's a really fun space because they have uh, an outdoor, you know, several different outdoor patios and tasting spaces and a rooftop to hang out on. And, you know, it's right near the, the big concert venue in Napa and um, it's right near the Oxbow. You can get gots. There's always food trucks there. Um, so it's just a really fun space. So I'm excited to just take people there and showcase the wines. And it's just, I mean, it's just, it's just a really, you know, she's a, uh, Katie, who's done it, you know, kind of created the space, has really done a phenomenal job with. Yeah. When will you be open? Um, well, it's as it's soon open. As the compliance people it's say so she can. As soon as the my deposit is in, so whenever whenever I get my whenever I get my dupo too, then I'll I'll go in there. But probably I'm hoping for April. That'd I mean, the great. nice thing about that, it's pretty easy yeah. once you have that done, right? Because right. you don't have to build out anything, right? Um, yeah, I looked at the I looked at doing my own tasting space, but I I like being you know more more social having more more options for consumers to come in and experience you know a lot of different wines in in addition to mine and also it's nice because people can go in and just have a glass of wine or buy a bottle which is becoming less and less frequent in you know our respective valleys so it brings back some of that casualness of wine tasting which a lot of consumers do miss and like especially what i see on the message boards you know in the different groups people really do miss being able to just belly up to a bar and have a glass of wine or buy a bottle and sit on the patio and you can still do that there so that's really nice well so is that a big move for you doing a tasting room i mean what is your what's case production and and obviously you're doing most to direct to consumer right yeah i do a lot of direct to consumer um a lot of the wines are available in different restaurants um in napa and los angeles so i um i have in the bay area too sometimes they you know they creep around the valley so um but mostly i'm the only one that's selling the wine um and so um you know in terms of sonoma a lot of the wines um have been available at Tob family um, in the square. So I did my kind of harvest release party there last year. And then, um, you can find them on the list in several Napa restaurants. So almost all the wines are available at Thomas Keller's ad hoc restaurant in Yachtville. Um, they're also at soul bar up in Calistoga. They're at, you know, um, Morimoto's in Napa, Morimoto Asia, new restaurant. Is that open yet? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, so I have several wines that are there um, from Olivia Brion, and then um, some of the Cantadora ones are at No Tree, and some of them are at Zuzu. So some of my favorite restaurants in Napa. It gives you're me a good excuse to eat well. Okay, you're, getting out, <laughs> you're getting out and hustling. Yeah. Yeah, so, we're miss on the dings on that one. Yeah, too so many, it's too it's, many to names to ding. It's a, it's a, it's you know. So I, I've been. Um, 
I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for the support of restaurants. They definitely, um, propel consumers towards me. I get emails from people. Mm. Oh, I had this wine yeah. on the pairing menu at ad hoc. I loved it. Can I get a cake? You know, it, it, it helps for sure. So, yeah. yeah. This would be so <laughs> wild. Tailing again. <laughs> um, so the Tempranillo, what do you guys think? The te- one of my favorite things in a wine is when it's just about to be like too much on the palate that it like lets up and releases. And this totally does that where it's like going, going, going. And then kind of goes, goes upward. I dig it. <laughs> yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I, no, I gotcha because yeah. it, it, if it's too much, it's lays heavy on the palate and dries out your mouth. Right. And this has definitely pr- pronounced tannin. But, you know, it does. It has it that lift. It has that, that release. You know, whether Tempernia. it's... I mean, it would be weird if it didn't have tannin. Right. It's a tempernio. Well, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Especially from Shake Ridge. Where, right. Yeah. Where you would think it would be just all tannin. Right. Um, but it's very, again, very respectful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, nice job. Thank really you. Really nice. Oh, and all the wines. Yeah. yeah. I mean, lineup. Yeah. What is typical price points on some of the wines? So the Cantador line price is at $50 a bottle, and I get uh, give 10% of the sales back to the organizations the women have founded. Um, and then the Olivia Brion's varies from 30 to 50 So the Taquin is 30 and the Pinot is 50 and then I have um, I have some unoaked versions on in the temperate in the Olivia Brion labels too. Like I have an unoaked and kind of fresher version of Grenache, hundred percent Grenache, with an emphasis on a head train block where it's like. <laughs> and where is that from? Oh. Did you just you, did where did you bring you them so that you'd come back on the show? Uh, yeah. Like <laughs> Brian's well, going. I'm like, yeah, I want to compete with Casey for Grenache Day. Can you bring us both on? <laughs> We'll just bring you. Casey can stay home. No, I'll, yeah, yeah, happy back. That's, right. That was the carrot. That was, that right. was the Well carrot. played. Well, you've really run this show pretty well in general. You've obviously listened to the show and you probably have opinions about all four of us. Can we talk about the wine guys? Right. Uh, yeah. Well, those, the, the Cantador wines are really competitively priced, especially considering the fruit sourcing that you got. Cause I thought that Anne sort of pushed back a lot of times on people um, putting the wines out there at a certain price point. Like she kind of wants the wines that are coming from her vineyard to be above a certain level. Um, if they're on wine lists and um, she's been, she hasn't, I don't think she's ever said anything about it to me, to be honest, okay. I would be, forthright i you know you have the um i do my own taxes because finance and i do all my own yeah Yeah, exactly you're right i could start a business here i do all my own cost of goods sold calculations which is useful in all my inventory calculations and so i have a really good handle on what i need to price the wines at in order to run a business because that's ultimately what we're all sort of trying to do right um and so that is that is part of it you know i try to make it obviously worth it the juice has to taste that good but it also has to be priced at what the fruit cost is to me and so that is there is a bit of a math equation yeah so it's 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 meeting that sweet spot at this price um i you know i don't want to embarrass my parents friends and the price of the wine type of thing you know it's like i always think wine these are luxury wine prices you know we're just a little bit 
um I don't know. Like we 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 get inundated with all these high priced wines in you know Sonoma and Napa and whatnot, and we're so you know um, yeah, the difference is like, like, such. the difference like, is luxury as opposed to lifestyle, right? Isn't that the term that Tor used? Lifestyle wines. Um, I have a different take on lifestyle um, <laughs> wines, right? Um, but okay, yeah. I mean, I don't think in pri- I don't think in terms of price when I think of lifestyle wines. For me, it's more like Scribe and Abbott's Passage and uh, okay, okay, things like where it's like a more like a brand. Got it. I don't. Yeah, I don't think yeah. in terms of okay. pricing. But how many how many different wines are you making? Currently? So I make seven different wines out of the nineteen vintage, and it's okay. going to vary based on yield. I do limit my growth because I do only source from organically farmed fruit. It does not have to be certified, but it does have to be. Um, no, uh, herbicide or no, you know, herbicides, no roundup, no roundup. And, um, and a little, you know, and obviously organic sources of pesticides if they're used at all. So, um, and I, and I definitely try to find places that are building an ecosystem for that vineyard as well. Like my Russian river fruit has the sheep, you know, the dumb sheep that we talked about (laughs) and, um, and also, you know, but it, but they have bee boxes. Great name for a label, by the way. Dumb sheep. Dumb sheep. sheep. Side brand. Do they ever get offended that you talk like that? No, they're dumb. They don't even know. (laughs) I go check in with them. I go check in with them every time I go and they just bah at me, you know? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Hold on here. I guess what I'm asking is, is this, is this your only source of income? Like Oh, are- yes. So I I just do this now. So from 19 on. So I um I self-funded, so I used the money I was going to go to Davis with and started a company instead. <laughs> and um and then uh started to you know, I've rolled the capital into my company ever since because I haven't taken alternative sources of funding yet. Um, and so I am, you know, like kind of paying into a retirement fund at this point and then hoping next year I'll have enough to just have a, you know, start myself on a salary. But it's, it's a lot of, yeah, I mean, it's an entrepreneur lifestyle and I listen to, you know, the Guy Raz podcast and stuff to amp me up and be like, no, this is okay. This is how it goes. You know, this is the, this is the years that you invest in it. And then you, um, you know, hopefully have, you know, more control over it later, um, because you haven't taken that outside sources of funding. And then, um, you know, you can, you can grow at your own pace. So I am at, I'm over a thousand cases now. Um, and then, you know, but I don't want to grow tremendously, but I, I want, I would like to grow a little bit and, um, but I do need to find those organic sites that I want to work with. So I'm looking at some new sites, newly planted sites that are committing to organic farming now. And so that'll be part of the the pipeline in the future, um, in different parts of California. And I also, I go beyond just looking at organic. I look at sustainability in terms of, does this make sense for grapevines? So sh- one, should there be other crops planted here, given that we are running into, you know, food shortage issues and lack of water resources and whatnot. So when you look at like, I love wine history. That's, you know, always a fun thing for me to talk to people about. And so if you look at the ancient history of Rome, Romans would go into a place and plant crops. And then when they couldn't plant any more crops, they would start planting vines. And that was usually when they started to hit the hillsides, right? And so I kind of have that same approach in California to sustainability. 
not only does it make sense for vines to be planted here, do they have enough water to sustain them where you're not, you know, con like, like with Shakerage Ranch, Anne doesn't go, you know, she doesn't water beyond the replacement amount in the well. She uses groundwater, you know, well water, but she doesn't water beyond an unsustainable level in the well. And so that's what I'm looking for because there are parts of California that, you know, like especially in the Central Valley or, you know, some hotter parts of California that they have groundwater but it's taking it from other essential resources. You know, in California, we pre-produce over 80% of the produce for the United States, you know? So it it's a lot of what I'm thinking about in terms of the future of our state and trying to find those places in our state that are more sustainable in addition to being organic. Cool. You're getting a lot of applause around here for your attitude and and yeah. practice no Seriously. i mean you know thinking about the farming in that way giving back to these organizations that are so important and yeah. you know in a really thoughtful way uh you're, you're hitting all the high notes for sure so it's inspiring we should all be doing so good <laughs> sustainability is more than more than planting or spraying, spraying around roundup up. and letting your mustard grow right yeah <laughs> So, what kind good of, for you. Um, are there varietals that you haven't had a chance to work with that you really kind of want to get into? Um, well, I there's a lot of whites actually that I'd like oh, to work okay. with. Okay, talk to me more. Like I, <laughs> I do want to like I love um, I love Fiano, yeah. and I'd like yeah. to work with Fiano. Um, I know that I've been pestering for years, um, George Unti about his. Fiano and his Syrah, but you know, someday maybe. And then, um, and then, um, Peak Pool. I like Peak Pool, yeah. but they're hard. It's hard to find organically farmed, frankly. You know, yeah. I tried to find it the last couple of years and I just haven't it's found it. It's hard to it. find, period. Let yeah, it's hard to find, farm. period, but the sources I found were not organically farmed. And, right. um, and then, um, you know, I mean, I think at some point I'll probably do the thing you're, you know, make some cabernet that was my you know that was my foundation in napa i was wondering too because that's like a i mean that's a tough game right it is it's not i'm not really i think when you enter the there's so many expectations and so much competition oh. and i'm inundated it with it in napa so it's almost refreshing to not do it at this point in my career um but i'm definitely not afraid of it i mean i really enjoyed doing it when i was making it so maybe at some point um but I, you know i'm really more excited about the varietals that i think um are coming from you know spain and italy and you know maybe even parts of greece that you know fit our climate in terms of latitude and are more sustainable and that um, you know, maybe they're a little more resistant to frost or a little more resistant mm. to, you know, different, um, diseases that we have or, you know, <laughs> heat, you know, certainly. Um, so I, you know, I'm definitely trying to just drill into that sustainability aspect of it and be part of that solution too. Um, and then are you willing to talk about your property that you have? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, um, I have my grandfather, but I think he just wanted to be a rancher or something. He was an engineer, but he bought 33 acres in the Sierra foothills. So I have 30 like specifically where in rescue little town of rescue in the El Dorado AVA. El Dorado. Okay. Yeah. So it's El Dorado foothills. It's about 1200 feet elevation. It's like a 15% grade, you know, it's not, it's not a bad, um, area there's some vineyard sources like skinner has some vineyards yeah, over right. there now yeah. and i like their stuff 
Um, and I think, you know, I mean, I love, um, and not that it's anywhere close really, but you know, latitude wise, it's close as, um, like Steve Easton and Tara Rouge. And mm -hmm. I love what he's done for Roans over the years, of course. And I, I just, I love Roans, So it, it makes sense yeah, that I might consider planting it at some point, but, um, you know, at this point, I just feel like I'm in such an educational phase of my career. It's, it's, it, it's so um, it requires you to live there, I think, um, if you want to grow there. And I'm not ready to do that. I really like living in Napa and Sonoma and, you know, just absorbing all the education from the people in this in these valleys. You well, know, and, I, and there is something to be said about this, going along with your sustainability with, yeah. you know, the driving and, right. and being able to be connected. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like I I would if I was going to live on a site and produce an estate site, I would I, or if I was going to produce an estate site, I would definitely want to live there. And 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 also I'd really want to do the analysis to see if it is a sustainable site for viticulture, you know, I know someone that can do that for you. <laughs> so I, I haven't I haven't jumped into that yet. Um, you know, it's enough to just uh, run a couple of brands and really build those up and create that. Um, foundation for myself and it's only been since 2019 and it's almost you know it's wow. been close to five years now but it doesn't feel that way every year has been so different with like you know 19 was really all about learning how to sell wholesale for me that was a big big thing 20 I had a second baby at the beginning of it and I wasn't willing to to die so I didn't make any wine that year <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know and then I just kind of looked smart because of the fires and stuff which were you know just awful but um but I didn't make wine in 20 and so I was just doing a lot more consumer sales in 20 where I was doing these really deep dives into like the ancient history of wine or, you know, like I was looking at, um, you know, well, it really started because, you know, obviously I'm really focused on labels. So I thought the consumers that buy my wine would enjoy learning about the history of labels. And then it was this long wormhole into the history of wine storage because I was like, well, what, how do you put a label on a bottle? You have to have a bottle. How do you have a bottle? You have a furnace hot enough to make a bottle, you know, that's a consistent mold. How do you have a label? You have to have lithography. That was in 1799. So we don't really have wine on the table with a uh, vintage with a name on it until you know, the mid 1800s, it's not even legal to sell wine in a bottle in England until like 1865 because the glass was too brittle before the coal furnace. So it took me through this whole wormhole of wine storage and wine history. And so we that- We know what you did over COVID. That was what I was doing over COVID. Yeah. I was just checking Sounds out books like from the library podcast. and trying to take care of my newborn, you know, it was, yeah. it was a good time. And then, yeah, and then 21- Stay alive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And staying alive. And then 21 was all about, you know, how do I kind of grow this business? What's sustainable? Moving to Obsidian, you know, really kind of creating more of- um, you know, like a year over year consistency where, you know, with places that I could work and whatnot and produce. And then, um, and then now I'm, you know, tasting room and continuing yeah. to, how old are the kids? My kids are two, almost three and five. So little guys. Okay. So you you probably don't have any free time. What do you do? What are your yeah, hobbies you like other than you know when you're not making wine or taking care of the kids? What do you? And, is there a certain? Does, yeah, you said your husband is he work in the business or he hopefully in, he doesn't work in the business. No, yeah. he thank God. No, he works in tech. <laughs> so he he runs recruitment for a startup. Um, that's a it's not it's a hundred percent remote company. So it's nice he can be uh, at our house in Napa. Cool. Yeah. Right. 
So. And what do you kayak or what do you do in there? Oh no, I don't time? do anything. I just I just work and Go take care of my kids. On, and if <laughs> I do anything, I read. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm reading um one of Patrick McGovern's books right now. Um, like un- uncorking the past, and that one is a is a fun one. But the yeah, it was you know I. So I, I read about wine history and I usually have like eight different books open that I pop around. Check out Tor Kenward's book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I've just been reading it this last week and it's fascinating. It really is. I mean, you talk about a history of wine. Yeah. There it is. There you go, Danny. There's another plug. There you go. Uh, <laughs> Send another bottle. What, what, yeah. What are, what are your favorite, what, what did, uh, what are your favorite wine books that you've read? What should I read next? I'm going to ask Sam that. <laughs> Wine books? Read? I just read Tours. I've it. been reading lately um, cheesy mystery novels, okay. um, but they're based in Provence. Okay. Uh, and all the, you know, and so there's like a story and there's like a little like romance side of it, but it's all about the food and wine. And they're like, it's talking the chief about, of police. Oh, I, well, I read those first. Yeah. But those he was in the Paragord, yeah. Bruno. Yeah. And, and now they're in, they're in Aix en Provence and going to all these restaurants and the, the like main characters invested in a, a vineyard and a winery talking about Helene's Syrah that she's making. But, and then they, you know, they talk about, and my favorite scene in the last one I just finished, they went to a new restaurant, uh, Antoine and, and Marine, and, uh, they noted it because when the the it was a woman back of house it was a husband and wife team the the wife was was the chef and the husband was right in front of house and when they brought the bottle of uh, white shots enough to pop to the table uh he asked instead of just like sort of the traditional thing pouring the wine for the man to try he asked who would try the wine and it was like this sort of like momentous scene in this in this novel so that's that's what i i don't read history stuff i don't know my add i read a, i read i'll read i start lots of those books i never finish them it takes me a long time to finish a book because i'm always popping around to different genres but it's i don't know i just what i love about wine history is that um like it i don't know it's just this never ending like quest for information you can always learn something different like i became totally uh, like i was learning about the wine that was traded on the silk road the other day and i became totally obsessed with trying to find this grape in that grows over in um in china and different parts over there called the mare's teat have you guys heard of this apparently it was a grape that it like it is very long and thin so i think that's where it gets its name but in ancient history (laughs) it was recorded as being able it's a white wine and it's been recorded at being able to age for like 50 years and this was you know before they understood sulfur very well so like i was just fascinated so, by the mayor's tea. <laughs> so like... There's a, I was at a farmer's market in Southern California, like Santa Monica or something. And there was this guy there selling grapes and raisins. And he had these raisins that he was calling finger raisins. Yeah. And they were these long yeah. skinny. Yeah. And I'm sure that that must've been something like that. That was making the mayor's teat. Uh, and I'm sure it was a white grape. It was a white grape. I was talking about it. Yeah. So there might be some somebody out down. I think he was out of 
Temecula or something. I'll I'll try and track it down. And the, I bought a you know pound of the raisins. I was the only one who liked them. But um, <laughs> I thought my I thought my kid would love them. She didn't. She wanted nothing to do with them. They're like, have you been over to the Rhone region? Um, I've been over there. Yeah, I went to Chateauneuf de Pop and I went to Bogostel, of course, um, and the south of France. I was, I was, it was, it was, it was nice. It was a wonderful experience. And, um, I took one of the 08 bottles that I bought over there in 15 to dinner for my birthday this year. And it was amazing. It, you know, when you drink an amazing bottle of wine as a winemaker and it makes you kind of sad because you don't know if you'll ever make you'll a wine. Get that, there. <laughs> you know, you can never, like, it's just, is so conflicting right because you don't know if you'll ever make a wine that ages in that way and it's so profoundly beautiful but also kind of makes you sad so yeah that was my birthday experience this year i have two books for you one of them is called water water a natural history okay and the other one is called real wine All and right. i'll send you links to them both. good thank you yeah, yeah. wine and war Wine and War is like a classic. I told Wine Talks about that, and they did an episode with those uh, those people yeah, that wrote that wrote book. That was one of my favorites, too. That's, that's probably, I mean, as far as wine history and yeah. all the cellars and all the different regions of France and how yeah. you know they hid their, you know, built false walls yeah. to hide their wine from the Nazis. And just, wine and War is such a good book. And then, yeah. um, have you read Tasting the Past? It's no. it's a really it's a fun one because it's written by a journalist that so kind of like keeps the pace. It's written by like a writer writer. Um, so maybe I could have a chance with that one. Maybe yeah, it's, it has like a story and whatnot. Um, but it's 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 and it's also a smaller you know it's not like the nine hundred page text. You're hitting, you're hitting all my high notes here. Trying, Thank you, Karen. My, my I'm, trying, I'm trying to sell you on this book. My two um, books no. are also thin and yeah. large print. <laughs> really big print. Um, no, so <laughs> So the the taste tasting the past, I really enjoyed that one. That's yeah, that one. Okay, yeah, cool. it's 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 a good one. It talks a lot about wine from Israel. The problem with I that I find with reading about wine from you know sort of the Fertile Crescent and these areas <laughs> is I'm really inspired to go there. Like I'll read about wine that's produced and I'll read about like this you know, and I, I'm not like some geography expert. And so I'm constantly being, you know, surprised by where places are. And so I'll read about, Oh, I want to go to this place. And it's in like Palestine. Right, and I'm right. like, Oh, no, Syria. I know, war torn valley. I know, it's like in the Iranian, and I was just like, oh, we need to help them figure this stuff out so that we can yeah. go and drink wine there. <laughs> so. oh, there's, there was a, there's a winemaker named Stefan Derenencourt, flying winemaker consultant, who told the story about he was consulting with some project that was in Syria, but. You couldn't get in there when, mm -hmm. especially like you know, this was in the recent past. Yeah, and so they were driving in a taxi cab samples from the vineyard to the border, oh my and God. then he would like taste the samples and then send his his consulting notes back in this cab. I mean, just like yeah, I don't, it, and I don't, I don't think that that it was this talk about a not sustainable system i don't think that, that i don't think that project <laughs> there survived in syria that could yeah. have made that one <laughs> that's working out for them but it's uh, yeah i mean you know well there is something about tasting wine where it's made yeah you know i mean i'd, I'd love to sit down to a, a a carafe at lunch
French in, yeah. in the south of France or along the Loire River, wherever we are, you know, that it's just, it's so inbred in the, the culture and the fabric of the society there. It's amazing. And when you go there, I mean, it's all beautiful wine. I don't care what it is. Yeah. Joan and I were talking last night in a, we were in a Leclerc supermarket and I had already loaded up my cart down the regular bottle aisle she goes honey don't you want to come over here here's the magnum aisle so yeah i just piled it on top and you know it was just so much fun shopping over there because a magnum of great wine was like 10 bucks oh yeah it doesn't matter what you drink in the south of france it's gonna taste good it's like i you know when we were in when we were in arl we would just open like a cheap bottle of even like I don't know, Tempranillo Rosé. I mean, they would just use crazy varietals, but it was, you know, and like a jar of pesto and some pasta, and it was amazing. Yeah. So I'm it's hungry. Just, I know. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just. It's yeah. noon podcast. It's so times. good. I know. It's just like wine, <laughs> wa- wine. wax poetic. I will, I will tell one story. So I was in Burgundy and I was, uh, my old boss set me up with some tastings over there while I was there. And so I was going to the cellar and I had food poisoning. So I would go into the cellar, taste wine at 8 a.m., come out, throw up near next to my car <laughs> and then go to the next place. And it was horrible because I did get to taste some like DRC and stuff. But um, but the- DRC. Probably, I was just hiding from everyone. Yeah, I was just like, no, it does taste good. This is such a reflection on you. Um, and then, but it was like I had the most dramatic burgundy experience. I, I it was like one, I was very sick, and then two, I uh, we stayed in this kind of bell tower. I mean, it's only three stories high in Burgundy. They don't let you build any higher than that, but it was the top story in Burgundy in the the town of Burgundy in this Airbnb. And we had um, a bat that got stuck because there's no screens, right? And so a bat got stuck in our, and we like, we were listening at night trying to, you know, I don't know, just try to sleep. And we heard this like chirping noise and we finally went to investigate it. And there was this bat that was just frantically flying around in the living room trying to escape. And my husband and I ran into the bathroom to hide from the bat. I don't know why that was the smart choice. But we were talking about this bat trying to figure out. I was on my phone trying to find a hotels.com hotel to check into. <laughs> like, how can we escape this bat in Burgundy? And and finally, I realized, like, he wasn't going to do anything about it. Like, he was totally fine with me taking care of the bat. And so I, I was just like, oh, my God, this is going to be my problem. And so I just grabbed the this bath mat that was like you know heavier than a towel and came out of the bathroom and frantically waved it in front of me and tried to open the window you know of this kind of ancient place in burgundy and of course the like the window got stuck on the 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 um like the drape you know the um the the cord for the drape and so i'm like trying to unwind it and finally release this bat into burgundy so my whole yeah. my, my whole experience with burgundy was like throwing up and fighting bats and like, <laughs> like <laughs> bats want, don't, they don't want to be trapped in the house they yeah. want to get outside yeah. that's exactly. it and, and they're actually very cool i mean we put up a bat house when we moved out here 10 years ago and it's highly populated no, and we used useful. to watch them in chicago because yeah. there are tons in the city and we lived along the chicago river 
And every night they would come out and you could watch them and hear them and they'd swoop and eat like 20,000 insects a right. night per bat. It's amazing. Yeah. No, it is. Bats are great, but just not in, maybe, not in your house. maybe not in your not house. In your yeah. Bedroom. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I'm on my so, vacation in Burgundy. Yeah, not on yeah, my vacation in Burgundy. <laughs> I finally got over the food poisoning. <laughs> I haven't slept. <laughs> and now I'm what? I'm tired and sick and I have to fight a bat. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and on that note <laughs> sounds like it could be you know some back label copy inspiration for you yeah exactly <laughs> i can tell that story on my next pinot noir um but yeah what's coming up what like what's yeah, your so next so have, what's yeah, in the pipeline so, for 21 so this year i have um a rosé of Pinot Noir from the Santa Cruz Mountains. That's where my next Pinot will come from for Olivia Brion is Santa Cruz Mountains. Bill Bristow is farming that property up there, so that's nice. And um, and then I have three new women for the Cantadora wines. Um, one, I'm making a Napa Valley Chardonnay. So she asked for a white, and I wanted to make her the penultimate white, so to speak. And so I got um, some Mathiasin fruit from his vineyard in Napa and I'm making her a Napa shard. And, um, yep. And, uh, and so, and then I'm making, and she's, I mean, she's a, all of the women for the next cohort are just as wonderful. I'm so excited to work with them. Um, one is Michelle Albert. She's the current president of the American heart association. And, um, she was formerly the president of black cardiologists and she's, um, the dean of admissions for UCSF. She's the head of cardiology at UCSF. And she started an organization called Nurture, which fo- focuses on health equity. So hers cool. will be the heart of gold from um, Napa Chardonnay. And mm. then I'll have two other rounds. They were is a smaller vintage. So it kind of worked out because it allowed me to have three women because with a white, you know, a, as an addition, because I only had enough fruit for two reds. So I have a GSM coming out of Shake Ridge. Um, and that will feature Janet Spears. She's the CEO of what's called the Meta Fund. It's M-E-T-T-A in San Francisco, and it focuses on equity and aging. And um, and she's uh, just this wonderful, wonderful woman that um, has done a lot for the Bay Area. She's worked at several different nonprofits since she retired from um, being an electrical engineer at AT&T for 20 years. And then just really fun story. She grew up in Vacaville, so, you know, another local lady. And then... Um, and then the third wine um, will be uh, Nancy Hom. So it's after this initial cohort of women and then Michelle Albert. These were the last women that I chose. Now it's a baton pass. So Cynthia Tom chose Nancy Hom to nominate uh, for the next wow. label. Okay. Nice. Yeah. And so and then Sonia Malera chose Janet Spears. So um, so Nancy Hom is this artist. Her works in the SF MoMA. She's, you know, lauded in her own right. But she also um, has been a an activist in San Francisco and been instrumental in the growth and founding of three different organizations in San Francisco. Wow. Um, cool. So just, you know, people doing amazing work on a day-to-day basis that I get to talk about and share wine with. And it makes me enjoy my job so much more in that way. So it's a really Did, fun did project. we ever talk about, do they, do you give them a few cases? <laughs> yeah. Of wine oh, that absolutely. They get? Okay. I always give them cases yeah. and then we do events together so other people can meet them and, you know, share in their story and share in their purpose and organizations and whatnot. And yep. I mean, my goal is really, you know, wine is all about community, right? And art and, and lifestyle. And with Cantadora, that's kind of where I bring it all together for me yep. is these different women that are doing some 
you know, tremendous work, but they love wine. They love life. They love, you know, so it's, it can be sad because there are these causes that we do need to support and create change, but it also should be inspiring and uplifting because there are people doing something about it and you can be a part of that too. So. Cool. Awesome. Um, I want to nominate my mother-in-law. Worked like 40 years nonprofit in the, in Marin County in the um, Latino community at Canal Alliance, but she would be amazing. Um, I want to, yeah, I want to, I want to start like highlighting these different stories in a different way because yeah, now it is sort of a baton pass. So it's up to these women because that's, that's part of the project, right? They get to see it, you know, be carried forward too. So I want to, you know, give them some compensation for being yep. part of it. So obviously it's wine and some organ- some work for their organization, but it's also to bring their community into the project even more. So And that's your built-in sustainability on the concept as they pass the torch. It's amazing. Great concept. That's really wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, let's talk about where to get the wine. Yeah. So, we- <laughs> so you can get the wine um, online. They're all available at uh, oliviabrion.com, B-R-I-O-N. Um I'm on Instagram, Olivia Brion Wines, plural, or Cantadora Wine, C-A-N-T-A-D-O-R-A. Um, I'll be, you guys told me this will air on Friday. I'm doing a really cool winemaker dinner next week in Los Angeles at Pacific Standard Prime. I think there's some still some tickets available. It's for Wednesday to celebrate International uh, Women's Day on March 8th. Um, so if you're in the L.A. area, it'll be a really phenomenal five-course meal with a great a great restaurant in Redondo Beach and I'll be in LA for a few days um, and then hopefully starting in April I'll have the wines in rotation at Feast at Ford in the Napa Valley so right next to the Oxbow Market you'll be able to taste in the tasting room there cool alright you guys shout outs April Phil's Day I mean let's talk about it Where's the, we're all involved. We're we, all involved. we are, yeah. <laughs> I, I had to make sure that I wasn't being spammed or, you know, but <laughs> I called Sam and said, who's this guy? Who's You have an, you have an administrative <laughs> assistant. <laughs> no, a, April, <laughs> yeah, April Phil's day. Ticket, yeah. Tickets are live. Uh, you can get the link. It's all over all of the social medias. Yep. Um, this is uh, trying to find other events that are like this. I mean, there's not really anybody doing anything like this. So this is, you know, it's sponsored by Winery 16600 ostensibly, uh, but we're presenting 12 different winemakers who all buy fruit from the Rossi Ranch. Uh, focuses on the Rhones. I think maybe a little bit of Zinfandel will, will slide in there. Um, two tasting seminars, Rosé lunch at the Fairmont, uh, April 1st. Um, it's going to be fantastic i mean the, the tickets are it's not cheap but we're you know basically you're buying for lunch and a whole bunch of wine glasses yeah um and uh, the list of winemakers is insane um rosemary cake bread with her galicia galicia galic galica galica there it is yeah. galica wines that grenache uh, is beautiful Your grenache is, is wines amazing remind me a little bit of um, grenache that I tried. Oh, yeah. Yeah. uh Tony Biaggi is coming with his new Grenache project or that's coming out of the Hourglass facility. Um, Maybon. Maybon. Uh, Frederick Johansson's bringing the Grenache that he makes with Shannon Staglin, the Risa. Artie Johnson's going to be there with his Syrah. Mayan Chachki from, from uh, Atelier Melka with the wines that they're making for Sosi. Uh, Alejandro Ziman, who makes the 16600s. Uh, Danielle Langlois with Jam Dubois. Um, I know I'm not 
missing. There's too so. many to remember. There's too many to it's remember. Bart Hansen, Bart Hansen, Dane Sellers, uh, <laughs> Mike Bertu from, from the, the, the wines he's making I mean, with Mayo. Yeah, there's like a like. When was the last time anyone saw Mike Bertu actually in public? I occasionally in a vineyard <laughs> with his cool dog, but that's about it. Um, and you know, obviously Phil will be there. MJ's coming to town for it. Um, it's going to be Jamie Kaler, you know, is going to be the MC, the host. Um, so it's going to be, be awesome. It's going to be awesome. 100 seats. Uh, here's the cool part. There's there's 10 seats available um, at a basically scholarship price for folks in the industry. Send us an email. We'll get you that uh, that information. So industry. So, so send an email. And, send an email and, to and tell your to story. Tell your story. Send it to me. My goal is so it's not just sort of like. The, there's gonna be a lot of industry there, but you know, I want to see some people who are you know in the vineyards making the wine or in the cellars making the wine getting a chance to come and sit sit in the tent yeah. uh, and taste through the wines. Yeah. Um, there'll be a, a bunch of spraying out barrels. That yeah, exactly. Come do a little education. Totally. Yeah. So um, get that out there. Uh, Eventbrite ticket is the ticket link. April Phil's Day, uh, a celebration of Rossi Ranch. Um, and it's gonna be it's gonna be awesome. April first coming up. So. Awesome. Can't wait. Cool. Can't wait. I was just going to say that your, your wines are absolutely beautiful. They're elegant wines. And so I totally appreciate, I'm primarily a white wine drinker in my personal life. Um, drink reds professionally, but, um, if they're elegant, (laughs) um, and like I showed you my, my little, an empty um, spittoon, empty spittoon. I mean, just, Gorgeous wine. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Great, great to have you. We'll see you back for Grenache Day. Sounds good. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's right. Casey's out. Casey's yeah. out. You're off the list, Casey. Sorry. There's a time for Neo Day. I make two. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to have the same cachet on this podcast. <laughs> right. Here, thanks for coming. Much appreciated. And hey, the sun's out. The oh, sun's cool out. Is that? The hail has gone away. Yeah, sun is out. We've had all four seasons while we've been sitting <laughs> here. <laughs> the hail with it. So. All right, everybody. Thanks Drink for listening. We'll talk next week. <laughs> Sounds good.